This audio is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on SiriusXM. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Women at Work on Business Radio. Welcome to Women at Work and our weekly conversation about how we can help more women join, stay, succeed, and lead in the workplace. I'm your host, Laura Zarrow, Executive Director of Wharton People Analytics. New episodes of Women at Work premiere on Thursdays at 9 a.m. Eastern, and our entire back catalog is available as a podcast wherever you get yours. Just search on Women at Work and Laura Zarrow, and be sure to follow the show on the channel's Twitter handle, at SXM Business, as well as mine, at Laura Zarrow. So I don't know about you, but I usually have a rather positive worldview, great faith in our ability to advance change and make things better. But when I turn on the news right now, I have this overwhelming feeling of frustration and powerlessness. Between the devastating storms that ravaged our communities this week, the politicization of mask wearing in a raging pandemic, ongoing sexual harassment by men in leadership roles, and now Texas's passage of the most restrictive abortion law in the country, I've never before had so many questions about power, especially the social impact of who has it, why they have it, and how they choose to use it, which is why I could not be more grateful for today's guest. Tiziana Casharo is a professor of organizational behavior at the Rotman School of Management of the University of Toronto. She's been recognized by Thinkers 50 as a management thinker most likely to shape the future of how organizations are managed and led, and is the co-author of the brilliant new book, Power for All how it really works, and why it's everyone's business. Written with her equally extraordinary colleague, Julie Batalana, the book explains how power works in a range of contexts and helps us understand how everyone, including those historically on the margins of power, can build and use their own to create societal change. So with that, Tiziana, welcome to Women at Work. Thank you for having me. I am delighted to be here. So as you can tell, I've got a few issues. I've got a bunch of questions. <laughs> and clearly there's things happening right now that are making this feel like an urgent conversation. But you didn't write the book today. So I was curious, what made you and Juliana write this book um, when you chose to write it, given that you've been doing research on this for so many years? Uh, you, you ask a good question because it, it, a book is a big endeavor, as anybody who's written one knows. <laughs> and uh, some books are even bigger endeavors than others because they tackle topics that are enormous. And power is a tiny little topic. So, you know, we really, uh, you know, got our, had our, our work cut out for us. So uh, what motivated us is witnessing the range and the number of people in this world who want to do good things, who want to have a positive impact, whether in their own personal lives or their own professional lives or in the world. They literally want to make the world a better place. And they encounter all kinds of frustrations and obstacles along the way. And in, in teaching and talking with these people, uh, it became very clear to both Julie and me that the reason for those obstacles is often a misunderstanding of what power is. So there's a, a, a reaction that is pretty visceral that a lot of people mm -hmm. have that power can be a dirty business. Uh, it's a matter of manipulation and coercion and cunning and sneakiness. You know, it's the legacy of a Machiavellian view that by the way, even Machiavelli didn't have quite in the way we portray it. <laughs> Poor Machiavelli, you know, in, in, in a sense we are, you know, taking his, his ideas and, and taking it to, to a different dimension altogether, but it's still with us. So there, there is a tendency to withdraw from engaging with power because you don't want to be solid by it. Ah. And on, on the other hand, you have people that become quite relentless about pursuing power. So, you yeah. know, it's very dysfunctional, the relationship. And we wanted to, number one, make it more functional because power ultimately is energy that you require to take action, whatever the action may be. It could be a good one. It could be a, an, an ill one, but you still need the power. So okay. that was an objective. So I could see why we desperately need it throughout my whole professional career. Um, never mind my personal life as a citizen, as a partner, as a woman. Um, 
always had these questions about where does power come from? Is it something that's within me that I need to tap into? Is it situational? Is it bestowed on people like authority? And it's a complex thing to try and understand, never mind to navigate. I think particularly if we're oriented to not believe that we have power in our own right. Mm -hmm. You're right. Um, it helps tremendously to understand how power is defined and where it comes from. Um, it's very simple. At least uh, the definition will say, in the definition <laughs> okay. set is very simple. Power is the ability to influence the behavior of other people. Okay. And it comes from having control over resources these people value. You, have, you can influence them if you can give them access to something that they need or want. And you control that access. What does it mean? That they don't have many alternatives to you to get that valued resource. And we confuse this basic idea when we think that power is, is a matter of a, some personal characteristic or personal endowment, because yes, it could very well be that you, Laura, are totally brilliant. And today I need this kind of brilliance, like in this very moment, I need this brilliance to convey the message of this book and so you're providing to me a resource I really value, right? But if I had not written this book, I would have been much less dependent on you right. because I don't need your brilliance <laughs> to convey the ideas of this book. I have other things to do. Right. So it's completely situational. It depends in the moment and it's completely relational because it goes both ways. That's mm -hmm. another thing that people sometimes uh, they personalize power so much that they forget that there's, there's, a, there's another party in the power relationship and you always have to understand both sides. So there's something you, you need also to make your content good, compelling, interesting, appealing. And so you need presumably authors. Yes, <laughs> brilliant I mean, authors. The, the arrogance is creeping in right now. <laughs> but you, we need each other. And we are mutually dependent in this moment because if I screw up, I ruin your show. If you are not at the top of your game, I cannot convey the idea as well. So it's very much situated in that moment and in that relationship. So it changes, you see. And, and that's what actually it makes me so... Uh, eager to convey these ideas because we can reshape these relationships as they evolve if you understand what the person in front of you wants and needs. When you have a deep understanding of that, then you can come up with ways to provide it. And so, then influence ensues. So when I think about... Um, and I'm going to start with the workplace. And then in the course of this conversation, I need to widen out to this world we're living in right now. But just starting here, you know, as you're doing with the dynamic between the two of us, or when I think about a workplace dynamic. So if I connect the dots, are the times when I have felt powerless, um, could they really be not whether or not I do or don't have power, but that there's something I'm not understanding about where the value is in the thing that's being debated, discussed, planned, and who has access over those resources and those assets of value? Absolutely. You nailed it. That's exactly how this uh, dynamic plays out. Uh, people that feel powerless, sometimes they actually are, in the sense that they are so deprived of resources that they can offer. And it could be for many reasons, it could be for macro reasons. Maybe they come from a background where they did not have access to an elite education. Mm -hmm. You can think of millions of people that never do get to cultivate their talents and their gifts. They don't have that opportunity. And so they end up maybe working in some uh, low level, relatively peripheral role in an organization or a substitutable one because the skills they bring are relatively common because they didn't have the, the, the chance to develop them mm -hmm. and make them more sophisticated and irreplaceable, and then they become expendable. And when you're expendable, power goes to hell because power exists when you need me and you cannot, re and you cannot find somebody ah. else that can deliver that resource to so, you. So when the resource is limited. That's right. It's a, it's a scarcity. So it's a matter of alternatives 
and it's a matter of intrinsic value of that resource. And when I say value of the resource, I mean, it could be substantive value mm-hmm. and it could Financial. be per- perceived just like mm-hmm. the stock market, the stock market, there's a, <laughs> there are fundamentals of right. a company that are real. And then there is the, the uh, psychology of the investor that is, is often purely perceptual, but both contribute to this idea that this particular resource, this stock is, has value in that moment or does not. By the way, for those of you who just tuned in, this is Women at Work on Business Radio, Sirius XM, Channel 132. I'm your host, Laura Zaro, and my guest today is Tiziana Casciaro. She's the author of the amazing new book, Power for All, How It Really Works and Why It's Everyone's Business. So Tiziana, as you're explaining this to me, um, here's another thing I want to sort so I know how to can start to wrap my head around this. So there... Sometimes when we're talking about power, it's interpersonal in the situation that we're in, um, where we actually sometimes have more ability to change the power dynamic than we think by how we operate. And then we also exist in a much bigger world where there are systemic limits to power that are about how society is functioning. And that's not to say that we don't have ability to make change happen there. It just happens in a different way, correct? Mm -hmm. That is totally correct. There are power dynamics that you cannot affect alone. They're too big. They involve too many people. And in that case, what you need is a movement. And a movement that allows you to coalesce with people who um, enjoy or do not (laughs) (laughs) the same position in the so-called power hierarchy. The power hierarchy Ah, is is what allocates essentially power in a distribution where some people have a lot more and they tend to be fewer and a whole lot of other people have less. And when you wanna change that, that kind of the macro structure of power, you need to organize a movement and a movement requires to be successful, requires three roles to be played as my phenomenal co-author, Julie Batilana, <laughs> I can explain to you better than me, but I will try to channel her as best I can. You need agitators, you need innovators, and you need orchestrators. And the agitator is the type of person who puts an issue on the map. Okay. They're capable of raising awareness. And awareness is fundamental because if you want to create change, and this could, could be, by the way, Laura, within an organization, actually, you can apply these principles as much as you can apply them to a social setting that is much bigger. But in a social setting that is bigger, it's even more relevant because you have to mobilize really a lot, a lot of people. So when we think about that idea of who's going to agitate, make something visible, that's where Greta Thunberg and teenagers have played this enormous role in waking grownups up to climate crisis. That's exactly right. These are the people that are, uh, these teenagers actually have taught us many, many lessons. Um, (laughs) One of them is that um, you have to be motivated to agitate. And uh, we are messing with something fundamental that we all need. And it drives a lot of our behaviors, which is a need for safety. We need, to be, we need to feel protected from harm as human beings. And then we need to feel good about ourselves, to feel that we are, we are, we are worthwhile, we, we matter to something. That's a more a self-esteem need. I need people to esteem me, but I need to esteem myself, to have a positive opinion of myself. Now, these teenagers have their need for safety challenged and threatened in the worst way. They are correct that for them, it's an existential problem. Mm-hmm. Uh, for the rest of us, it is also, but we are a little ahead of the, of the curve age-wise. So right. it, it's not quite as horrible as what they experience. And so here they are. They are motivated because we are depriving them of the ultimately most important need to satisfy, which is safety and self-esteem. But they taught us that you can learn to agitate and organize for an agitation in spectacular way as a kid. Yeah. This, they are doing organizing work, I mean, pre-pandemic, because the pandemic, of course, altered all of these equations, but the, what they were able to organize with these strikes requires a, a, a strike, an organizational capacity that you normally see the, the displayed by 
leaders that have been around in business, in politics for a little long time. They've had time to practice. And here you have these teenagers who figured that they needed to understand how to organize, talk about a valued resource. I can't get anything done if I don't have access to the skill and capability. And they acquired it. They reached out to the right people. They motivated them with this vision. And they learned these lessons and put them to use instantly. It was mightily impressed. I was really uh, stunned by how good they were. Yeah. And it gives, it gives me hope because you can see <laughs> presumably inexperienced children do something remarkable because they learned those skills that were needed at that point in time. So we can do a lot if we learn from them and not sit on our little tails and wait, and wait for somebody else to do something. There's also something ironic in that, um, especially as a parent, we often think of teenagers as not having um, the ability to think long-term and to understand the long-term impacts of things. And here they are mobilizing because they're aware of it in ways that everybody else needs to be. But embedded in this, I want to build on the, this these two key issues, because whether we're um, trying to change the power dynamic up close and personal, say at work every day, or whether we're trying to do it as activists and for big social change, this relationship between self-esteem and safety. And so is it that Obviously, safety is, you know, on our the hierarchy of needs, first and foremost. Um, Self-esteem, which is a driver, we want to and need to feel good about ourselves. Is it in this case that we have to have that sense of efficacy of our own self-worth in order to be motivated to agitate for change? Or is it that we will agitate when our self-esteem is threatened? Mm. We will agitate when we don't see mechanisms in a status quo to fulfill our need for self-esteem. And so there's a dissatisfaction. And this need, let me elaborate a little bit because where does it, where does it come from? What does it mean? So if you think about humanity, the homo sapiens, there have been over a hundred billion of us in the, from the beginning of our species to roam the earth. And not many of us are remembered, not many of us leave a trace. So there is a, a bit of an existential meaning, mm. a challenge that we kind of face. And we also uh, live in hierarchical systems where some people have higher relevance and status yes. and prestige, and they are superior and others are inferior. And it is our, it's, it's a need to not feel so little and so inconsequential and so meaningless. So, so that's where we really, really cultivate it. And by the way, the kids of the climate strike. Yes. One of the things they did was go after the adults and challenge how good the adults could feel about themselves by saying, what have you done? Right. What have you done? How, how dare you? Greta said. That is challenging our sense of us as moral beings mm -hmm. capable of pursuing the right values, which is a fundamental way in which you, you, you feed your self-esteem, to feel like you're a good person from a moral standpoint. And here is Greta and all of her allies saying to us, you cannot feel self-esteem if you go on like this. And I'm going to remind you of it. <laughs> right, so that you, you haven't, you don't deserve it. If you, you don't deserve it. Exactly. Right. So you're not, you, you, we are influenced by the, by these uh, teenagers because they are taking away from us something that we need, which is a and sense of us as moral beings. So these two things are these profound drivers. By the way, this is Women at Work on Business Radio, Sirius XM, Channel 132. I'm your host, Laura Zarrow, and my guest today is Tiziana Casciaro, author of the amazing new book, Power for All, How It Really Works and Why It's Everyone's Business. So Tiziana, as you're talking about this, I'm seeing self-esteem with more dimension. Um, and I want to make sure I'm, I'm connecting to it in the right ways so that on one hand, it's a baseline. It's a fundamental threshold of feeling validated, like our existence matters, as in that way that connects to our feeling safe and okay in the world. 
But then there's um, uh, a ladder, a grayscale of um, how self-esteem can be amplified and magnified as an inherent human driver. Am I important? Did I leave a mark? That's right. That's right. And the, the, the thing about self-esteem is that it can lead you, the, the pursuit of it can be functional or dysfunctional. Uh, when it's uh, functional, you learn about yourself, you understand yourself, you understand these drivers that you have, and you accept your gifts and your limitations, and you build on them. And um, in a, in a I will, uh, forgive me, almost a Buddhist yes. way to think about what does it mean to have an awareness of who you are? And therefore you deploy the, your gifts in the best possible way without being so insecure about your limitations that you become dysfunctionally attached to self-esteem and being validated. The people that are the most insecure people who are in need of approval do terrible things with their power. Because, because they're so driven by their, their, this insatiable desire to feel more important. That's right. It, it, it becomes a, a craving. Not, it is not a, a value, an objective, a vision. It becomes a craving for reassurance. And uh, it can come from many, many things. We, we see political leaders that exemplify this. And we, <laughs> we, you can you can take this conversation to do whatever conclusion <laughs> you, you wish. But um, the last thing you want is to have uh, political leaders or leaders in any setting. It could be a business leader that has the mm -hmm. same problem. That is there and pursues power to validate themselves, mm -hmm. not to pursue something bigger than themselves. And so is this yeah. where we could, um, and in the book there's, it's permeates it, but there's a beautiful section on the importance of humility and leadership. It sounds like this is where humility with that desire to create safety, not just for ourselves, but for others, um, that it's a, a pro-social, orientation and one that brings questioning of our own abilities but instead an investment in our role to try and help make good things happen versus an ego-driven need to get a whole bunch of people to validate that we're important so that we can feel better about ourselves that's exactly right and uh, and the, the in in our day with the challenges we face that are so overwhelming um, no individual leader can do it without the input of others. So the last thing you want is a leader that is so wrapped up in power that they succumb to the two negative poisons that power you know, puts in us. One is the poison of self-focus that you become uninterested in others because you have so much power. I don't need to think about you. I got my own thing going on here. And, <laughs> right. and so well, who are you? You're down there. I don't care. And so you become self-absorbed and you, you miss the fact that you're interdependent with other people. And if you don't understand that interdependence, you're not going to be able to rally the troops. You're not going to be able to accomplish anything bigger than you. Ah. And then you have the second issue with power is that it, it tends to make us feel overconfident because I have so much influence. I have so much sway. I think that I can do anything. Uh, and succeed uh, or, or with impunity. And so you become uh, hubristic and humility is the answer to that, but you need to, to cultivate it. So, and there are ways in which an organization uh, can help leaders cultivate empathy that counteracts self-focus and humility that counteracts this uh, overconfidence and arrogance that comes with power. So to connect, the dots to what we were talking to in the beginning, when you're referring to that interdependence, um, that's the kind of interdependence between the two of us, that yes. we both have a shared goal in why we're talking today. And um, in that, it helps us work together to hopefully make something that um, actually is greater than the sum of our parts. That's right. That's right. A lot of the, of the ill that happens in our world is because people fail to understand interdependence. And they think they can just go off and acquire as much power as they can 
and leave others in the dust because they think of power as a zero sum game. If I get more, you get less. If you get more, I get less. It's not like that. Right. Uh, <laughs> we can have power over each other so that we both have power because we are interdependent. So I need you, you need me. And what is critical for anybody in a position of power to understand is that you may enjoy your riches in, in this moment and maybe even for a bit of time. But what economic analysis, sociological analysis, you name it, demonstrates is that the prosperity of the system as a whole, our economic system, our social system, actually decreases the greater the power imbalance in society. The more disparity there is, the less growth of the system as a whole in the long run. Including so, economic growth. Yes, ma'am, absolutely including economic growth. So here you have the rich and powerful who can become very pleased with themselves because they get with their power a bigger and bigger slice of the pie and they feel very good. <laughs> right. But the pie is shrinking because their, their uh, behavior, this hoarding of power shrinks the economic pie, the well-being pie, the prosperity pie. So yes, you get a bigger slice, but of a smaller pie. So at the end of the day, you're not better off either, even though in the short run, you feel extremely privileged. We need to take a short break, but don't go away. When we come back, I'm going to continue my conversation with Tiziana Casharo about the book, Power for All. I'm Laura Zarrow, and this is Women at Work on Business Radio, Sirius XM, Channel 132. You're listening to Women at Work on Business Radio. Welcome back to Women at Work and our weekly conversation about how we can help more women join, stay, succeed, and lead in the workplace. I'm your host, Laura Zarrow, Executive Director of Wharton People Analytics. And today I'm the lucky one who gets to talk with the author of Power for All, How It Really Works and Why It's Everyone's Business. Tiziana Casciaro is a professor of organizational behavior at the Rotman School of Management of the University of Toronto. And I'm delighted to say our guest today on Women at Work. So welcome back. Oh, so good to be back. <laughs> so in the beginning, as we were talking about um, the nature of power, um, the combination of our drivers of self-esteem and safety, the dynamics of how we, um, the relationships that shape how it plays out in our one-to-one um, -one relationships, as well as on the societal playing field. One of the things you started to talk about was zero-sum thinking or where there's like limited slices of the pie. Talk to me about that in particular, as it relates to how women experience power or their lack thereof, whether it's work or in our society at large, because it seems like we're living in a tremendous and frightening power struggle as if it's a finite thing. That is right. And um, many of the uh, movements the, of how our political discourse and social discourse um, is shifting um, are actually not very encouraging because uh, it, we, in the realm of organizations, they could be a little bit more encouraging because the, there mm. has been a lot of at least um, attempt to make the world of work better for women in many companies, not all, not all, not all right. industries. We were still uh, having a lot of, uh, you know, road to travel. But at the large societal level, uh, there are events that um, really challenge the power that women are allowed to have. And um, those we need to understand because sometimes we make decisions as citizens, as, as voters, as um, people that choose our political representatives and choose our system of government that end up having repercussions that we may not completely understand. And I am thinking, of course, uh, today about the most recent decision of the Supreme Court of the United States about the uh, abortion law in uh, Texas. And, um, we don't even need, need to engage with the fundamentals of the pro-choice versus pro-life uh, stance, because those are can be extremely personal and deeply held values, and mm -hmm. uh, we honor all, all of them. 
what I do want though, is for everybody, for the general public to understand that when you limit the ability of a woman to control her existence, what you're actually doing is you're limiting her ability to put her gifts and talents to use in whatever way she thinks she can contribute to society. And I'm saying this because we have to go back to the definition of power. Power comes from control of the valued resources. Right. If I find myself producing children one after the other, I unavoidably become constrained in where I put my energy, uh, both physical, emotional, intellectual. Mm-hmm. I have to put it in raising these children. And I cannot put it nearly as freely toward other endeavors, for which, by the way, I may be very gifted. Yes, and or society uh, may need you. And society may very much need me. So what we are doing when we make choices of that, of that kind, when we create constraints of this kind, we are making decisions about what resources our society has access to and how we can thrive as a social system because you are basically confining a lot of talent in, in a certain way against the choice oftentimes of the owner of that talent that could decide to deploy it in other in other things that can be very beneficial to society. So you, you, you have to be reminded that the reason why we pursue power as human beings oftentimes is not to influence the world around us, is to influence our own life, to have control over our own choices. And these are big macro decisions that deprive individuals of autonomous choice the capacity to direct their existence that has repercussions for the health of our society because you are reinforcing a hierarchy of power with those decisions that becomes almost impossible to rebalance. It is not okay that you create a social system in which men, just because of physiology, get to deploy their skills and capabilities and talents in whatever way they see fit because they're not asked to carry a child and they're not asked to breastfeed a child. They're not asked to do so those fundamental functions that happen to be womanly. And then they have repercussions for other choices we make in a society because if I cannot get affordable childcare and if we do not change social norms, gender norms, that allow a father to play an equal role in the raising of the child. Unavoidably, not only the woman carries the child and then breastfeeds the child and attends to those basic needs, this this, uh, reallocation of work is protracted over time. And so you really withdraw from the workforce. And if, if you don't withdraw, it's because you're lucky enough to be in an environment where you have resources that you can draw from. You can have four or five children or, and, and you have a, a system of support. But see, a lot of women do not have it. Mm-hmm. And so those are the women that you are really taking down in the power hierarchy with decisions of that sort because they have no recourse. They have no alternative. They cannot change direction they don't have access to options. So with by exerting power over women's bodies that way, it's really exerting power over women's, not just choices, but access to opportunities as a result. Correct. That, that long-term limits their ability to um, advance themselves economically, socially, and to contribute beyond parenting in other meaningful ways. That is correct. And when you create a social system that is so hierarchical and puts some groups, and it's not just women, it, mm-hmm. there are many other groups that end up with the same fate. You create power disparities that are so big that what the resulting outcome 
is, is the lack of contribution of these people that have something to give, but they don't have the chance. So when you support certain legislation, remember that you're not just acting on a particular moral value, which could be fundamentally important to you, and I don't challenge that in the least. I just want people to understand the repercussions. And the repercussions are economic, they're political, and they create power hierarchies that make the system as a whole less prosperous, less conducive to a thriving of everybody. So I want to explore one of the power dynamics that's um, peculiar and particular um, to this recently passed Texas legislation. And it's as you were saying, it, it seems like there's really two fundamental issues that get blurred into one. Where are we talking about the, the choice about um, the pregnancy itself? and what that represents. And where are we creating power dynamics around women's autonomy? And one of the things in this law that's so frightening is it, it's very similar to what I think was called the Federal Slaves Act. And it weaponized citizenry against the people that they were trying to control. So it, in this Texas law, it's offering bounties on citizens who report on anyone related to any stage in the cycle of a woman traveling to get an abortion, a nurse at a desk somewhere, somebody who carries your luggage. And as a way of creating almost an army of controllers over the choices that these women make. And it seems like that has got to have a much more pernicious implication and that that's not that's not about saving the life of an unborn child or a fetus. That seems like it's about controlling the woman herself. That is right. And, and what is, um, unfortunately, can be very effective about such weaponization of fellow citizens is that you feed their sense that are superior uh, from a moral standpoint by doing this thing. You give me policing um, permission because I'm a better person than you. I get to say who is behaving right and who is behaving wrong. And I get to enforce that. And in the process, I feel better than you. That and that's why that self-esteem it, it, it feeds that self-esteem need in this pernicious, twisted kind of way that works because the need for self-esteem is ever present. Is ever present, but this is you're right, Laura. It, it, you pick up on one of the ways in which these fundamental needs can be weaponized. Uh, the need for safety, likewise. I know you. you if if I uh, make you feel I can protect you, I will have sway over you, even when that protection comes to the detriment of my freedom and my capacity to make choices for myself. Uh, we see surveillance systems in a lot of political um, political governance systems that really deprive you of control over what your, your data, your um, choices, uh, how visible they are to others. Those are all things done in the name of protection from harm, but they can come back to haunt you because as a result, you don't have your own right to autonomous choice. So it seems like this combination of this drive for moral superiority to fuel the self-esteem need and um, leveraging that to create this notion of safety, of you are either incapable of protecting yourself or now protected because we know better. Um, it creates a ripple effect then that means that the self-esteem of the person being kind of lorded over, being protected or constrained will diminish over time, that they will start to believe that they are not worthy of having power over their own lives and thus step back. That's right. And I think that that's what we see in, in the hierarchies of power, that the people that are less powerful or powerless end up uh, not, not buying into the narrative about their inferiority, but they live it, they embody it. If you're told constantly that you are not as good, 
that you, you don't have the capabilities. You end up uh, absorbing that story because legitimizing it maybe feels better to, to say, okay, maybe the system is actually okay, it's fair. If, if, you, if you really understand that the system is unfair, you feel so horrible and you feel so violated that you almost psychologically, you prefer to, to go with the flow and say, oh, well, maybe, maybe that's true. But some of these narratives are uh, terribly pernicious and absurd and we forget how many narratives in the context of women in particular, we have been uh, on the receiving end of, of stories about the inferiority of women for a really, really, really long time. So the wonderful English historian, Mary Beard in her uh, manifesto, uh, Women in Power, tells the story of uh, the Odyssey as uh, one of the first in which a woman was told to shut up. And the, the particular story, uh, you know, the Odyssey, okay, we're going way back, is of Telemachus, the, the son of Ulysses, who tells his mother, Penelope, to go back to your chambers because speech shall be the business of men. So it's a narrative that, you know, I'm a woman, I'm hearing this, and I guess I should, I should shut up. I, I'm not allowed to speak. Not to mention, and I brought this up because I want to remind myself of the language, uh, early 1900s, biologists concluding that men were superior for the following reasons. Since male sperm were small and active, while female ova tend to be big and relatively inert, men are naturally more active, energetic, eager, passionate, and variable, while females more passive, conservative, sluggish, oh. and stable. This is a narrative that uh, constructs a certain way that you, you see yourself and others see you. And we're and fed that we're endlessly fed that. in every story. So now, and because we only have a few minutes, like we only have about 10 minutes left. One of the things that this is um, connecting to for me is it feels like there's a sequence that we go through and that we've gone through in various waves of feminism of beginning to wake up and see how pernicious those stories are to agitate together um, at that, that first stage of social change to say, wait a second, this is not okay. You have a voice, you are active and energetic, Tiziana. I am active and energetic, we are capable, let's go do something. And that then um, there's the need, as you said, to innovate and then to organize. And we keep doing this over and over again. Millions of us around the globe on January 17th, 2017, agitating together in the streets. Is this something that we're ever going to be able to stop doing? Do we keep <laughs> need to doing it? And, and what's the next step when we're facing this kind of legislation as the continued attempt to disempower women in really fundamental ways? Mm -hmm. uh, I want to um, put this in context. The, the, the length of a cycle of change is not brief. And there will be ups and downs. And any movement for um, the rights of different people has taken a really long time, has undergone much frustration and but much elation also. Mm -hmm. So it is not entirely surprising that the, the cycle seems to be playing itself out constantly. But in fact, <laughs> we are making progress in yes. the sense that what those two biologists said in the early 1900s, nobody would come to, I mean, unless they're really out of their mind and they right. need some <laughs> serious therapy. Uh, <laughs> nobody would come and tell you because of the ova and the sperm. I mean, honestly, it's just, okay. Right. It, it's so ludicrous. we have made some progress. And I will say more that the progress we see in organizations, be they business or, you know, uh, political, is has been the arc of, of justice is going in the, in the right direction. You mm -hmm. see a lot more advancement of women in many workplaces that used to be, even up until three, four decades ago, completely uh, impossible to, mm -hmm. to enter. So yeah, I, I, could, I could list also the things that are still very much wrong with our workplaces and our industries, but there are many that are also very right. And 
what gives me enormous comfort is that in our research, and I want to give a shout out to two co-authors that have worked on this research, Bill McEvely, also University of Toronto, and Evelyn Jung, who is now at the Frankfurt Business School. We are observing great solidarity in the workplace among women mm -hmm. in, in environments where, you know, the stereotype has often been that women can be each other's worst enemies at work. That maybe we're very competitive. Uh, you know, we don't necessarily help each other. We throw it's each that other- that limited out. resource thing again. That's right. And, and it is true that when you feel like not many of us can make it because look at the top, there's nobody there like it looks like us. So there's one, the token. And therefore you get very anxious about your prospects. Mm -hmm. It turns out that in our organizations these days, but also in, already we collected data 15 years ago. So, you know, a long time at this point, you see great solidarity among women. I mean, if you ask colleagues to rate each other along relevant work criteria, competence, uh, how energizing you are, all of those things, far from undermining each other, women have a very positive view of other women and they don't have you quite as positive of other men. <laughs> Shocking. <laughs> Shocking. And, and, and men do all that also to some extent. But uh, this, this idea that we, we understand our worth and we're not buying these narratives that we're not as good, we're not as committed to work, we cannot concentrate on it because we have the children and the family. No, we, we see the value that we bring to, to our industries, our endeavors. So that to me is a result of a narrative shifting and we may be much more capable of, of buying into a narrative that is empowering and it is mm -hmm. not depleting of our energy to, to take action in the world. So when I think about this long arc of change that, and in the book, you beautifully described the first political statements in the early 1700s in France and um, just the radical statement that we, we should be, we are equal as members of humanity. Then we see, you know, the slow march forward of, okay, let's get the right to vote. Let's get the right to own property, have a credit card, go to work, be protected at work, succeed at work, get paid. A lot of these things are still underway. Get paid equally at work that not to lose faith because we are changing something that like you said goes back to Ovid that's so um, entrenched in how the genders interact, that it's not going to change overnight, but that we are making demonstrable progress. We are. We are. And we have to take the, the, the long view to appreciate it. And of course, uh, reminding ourselves that we live uh, you know, in North America. Um, uh, some of us, uh, Julie and myself, uh, are European uh, by origin. And so we, we are exposed to realities where this progress has been more tangible and steadier despite the setbacks. Uh, without forgetting that there are parts of the world where that is not, not the case in the least. And in fact, things, if anything, has regressed. Uh, I think of uh, countries like Turkey that had uh, enjoyed a certain much more uh, gender balanced understanding of the role of men and women in society. And that has regressed uh, in the last few years. So you see different parts of the world experiencing this differently, but overall, I would say that we are making progress and the fight goes on, however, and you cannot do the fight if you don't understand how power permeates all of these decisions, all of these choices, all of the stories we tell about who should be at the top and who should be at the bottom that justifies and legitimizes those roles when there's no substantive reason for a brown person or a black person to be down there mm -hmm. and for the rest of us white people to be up here. There is zero substantive reason. It's you still, know, we, here we are. Exactly. No? But where there is tremendous substance is in this book, I have to say. And one of the things, because we don't have enough time to go into it, is also recognizing that for those who feel like they are on the bottom, for the people who are feeling like they don't have power, for those of us that are outraged about this law passing in Texas, that agitating, but then also innovating 
finding creative solutions to restructure things, and then orchestrating them well, which is also where um, our interdependence, our relationships with one another and those power dynamics really come into play. And while we don't have nearly enough time, there is juicy stuff on that in the book. (laughs) (laughs) There is. And, you know, the history tells us that agitation, innovation, orchestration is the answer. And um, you can learn how to do it. And in the book, we talk about examples where it didn't look good. It didn't look possible. And people pulled off amazing things because they understood those roles and kept an eye on the ball in executing those roles over time because it's never fast, but it is within reach if we get the logic. Tiziana, for people who want more of you, so obviously (laughs) there's read the book, read the book have to say, read the book. But if people want to work with you, bring you in as a consultant, do research with you, how can they find you? Oh, well, we have a a lovely website for the book uh, that you can Google. It's powerforallbook.com. And you can reach both Julie and myself. Julie is fabulous in more ways than one. (laughs) And so you're going to have to experience her separately and uh, individually uh, to really, really know what I'm talking about. And then you can find me, uh, I'm at the website of the University of Toronto, Rotman School of Management. I will be happy to uh, exchange and compare notes with anybody who's eager to talk about these things. They matter a lot. They do indeed. Tiziana, I cannot have enjoyed the time with you more. um, And I'm so grateful you joined us. Thank you for the work you're doing and spending the time with us. Laura, it was a delight. Thank you so much for this conversation. I enjoyed it thoroughly. And thank you all for joining us. Uh, if you have a question about anything you heard on today's show, email us at businessradio at SiriusXM.com. Follow us on Twitter. Download our back catalog wherever you get your podcasts. As always, love and gratitude to my producer, Patty Hall, my sound engineer, Chris Tukes. I'm Laura Zarrow, and you've been listening to Women at Work on SiriusXM's Business Radio. For more guest interviews, check out our Wharton Business Radio Highlights podcast on iTunes and Google Play. 